Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. Joining me this week to continue our Labor and the Capitalist State series is Adam Hilton. Adam is a faculty member at Mount Holyoke College, and his research is all about the Democratic Party. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Democratic Party and the left, and man, I can't think of a more fortuitous week to be having this discussion. Most of you will know by now that former DNC interim chair Donna Brazil has recently written a tell-all book where she makes a series of allegations about how the Clinton campaign rigged the primary elections uh, from a couple of summers ago. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to hear more about that from Adam. We're going to break down exactly what those allegations might be. And most importantly, we're going to talk about the nature and the history of the Democratic Party. Is it a viable site of contestation for leftward advancement? I mean, these are really hot topics on the left right now. Some people want to go inside the Democratic Party, take over the DNC. Uh, you know, you saw Tom Perez recently expel a number of Bernie surrogates. So that doesn't seem like a very viable option right now. And nonetheless, there are people who want to run parties, uh, run candidates rather, under the Democratic Party ticket. And then there are those on the left who want nothing at all whatsoever to do with the Democratic Party at this point, And they want to sort of build an alternative outside of the two-party structure. But all of these debates rely on a certain kind of fundamental understanding of the Democratic Party as a monolithic institutional form. And Adam Hilton is going to go a long way in debunking that myth. Turns out the Democratic Party is far more amorphous uh, than it is uh, hegemonic or homogenous. And that has tremendous implications for our interaction with it. Spoiler alert, this is not going to be an episode where we're going to try to convince you that the Democratic Party can be taken over by leftists. However, in our critique of the Democratic Party, we present a far more nuanced uh, conception of it, I think, than what you're going to hear elsewhere outside of Dead Punnett Society land. I've got a B-side that I'm going to be releasing in the next couple of days, uh, available to my patrons, where Adam Hilton and I are going to be talking about the recent Bernie Sanders uh, effort to uh, alter the Democratic Party and what that means for the left project as a whole. So only my patrons are going to be able to hear that, folks. So if you're not a subscriber, a member of the Dead Pundits Society, head on over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe for $5 a month. And you'll get access to that B-side as well as all of the others. My guests have been spitting fire lately. They've been really great. And I've got a B-side with Leo Panich that's phenomenal. I've got a really good B-side with Steve Marr that I did last week. So, hey, five bucks a month is a pretty good investment to get all of this great content. Plus, you'll be supporting the New Left Agenda. Check me out on Twitter. Find me on Facebook. All of that good stuff. So later in the interview, Adam and I are going to be talking about the 1968 Democratic Party convention that resulted in riots on the floor of the convention and outside of the convention hall. So here's a quick one-minute clip just detailing that summer and why it was so monumental uh, for the Democratic Party's realignment efforts. Then I'll be bringing you my interview with Adam Hilton. Enjoy. 
For Democrats, the Chicago Convention of 1968 was a nightmare. Meeting after the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, Democrats fell into chaos, fighting Chicago police and each other. With George McGovern as president of the United States, we wouldn't have to have Gestapo's tactics in the streets of Chicago. Mr. Daley is not pleased with Senator Ribicoff. How hard it is, how hard it is to accept the truth. Vice President Hubert Humphrey, hobbled by the unpopularity of President Johnson and his Vietnam War policies, appealed for order. Surely we have now learned the lesson that violence breeds counter-violence and it cannot be condoned whatever the source. It didn't work. Humphrey's November defeat ushered in the era of Republican presidential dominance with seven GOP victories in the last 10 elections. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me this week is Adam Hilton. He's a visiting lecturer in politics at Mount Holyoke College, and he's got a really great essay in the upcoming Socialist Register 2018. That essay is called Organized for Democracy, Left Challenges, inside the Democratic Party. Adam, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So it is quite fortuitous that you would be on the Dead Pundit Society this week, given the recent revelations of former DNC head Donna Brazil. Your essay and your, you know, your academic research, uh, I would say as a whole, is really focused at looking at the this, this specific historical institutional configuration that is the Democratic Party. And Donna Brazil gave us a really interesting look uh, behind the curtain, if you will. Uh, what do you make of Donna's allegations and what does that tell us about the Democratic Party as a site of contestation today? Hmm. Yeah, it's, I think it's a really good question, and uh, I've begun sort of sifting through what some of the reactions, uh, you know, online and in the usual uh, publications have been to this set of revelations. And I actually think the Atlantic Magazine might have had it best, uh, or said it best, when uh, one of their staff writers said, uh, the only surprise here is that this was a surprise to Donna Brazil. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's apt. Yeah. yeah. Now, that the... Uh, Democratic Party as an organization is a vehicle of its candidates uh, rather than a structure that is responsive to the will of the Democratic rank and file or the party membership, however that's understood, is that should not be much of a revelation for people. The nature of American political parties uh, going back a very, very long time has always been one that prioritizes uh, the winning of office and the promotion of personalities in the party. So these revelations, in as much as they reveal or show us that the Clinton administration, the Clinton campaign organization, had preemptorily taken over the DNC uh, a year prior to Clinton uh, clinching the nomination, is really only an acceleration of a tendency that is the standard operating procedure of the National Committee. So we might say, so what, the, what you're referring to there is the fact that the DNC was broke uh, following Obama's uh, first and second campaigns. The, can the coffers were not filled, at least so the allegations go. And the DNC had to turn to the Clinton campaign 
to uh, to fund itself, just its day to day operations. Mm-hmm. At least that that's that that's the story that's being told and woven today. We'll see how much of that turns out to be true as the rebuttals and, and such come in. Um, so what you what you seem to be uh, implying is that that the, the, this this is the fundamental way that the uh, political parties in, in the United States operate. It's just that perhaps some of the barriers to fundraising made that reality more explicit in this case. Yeah. I mean, what, what I'd want to emphasize here is that anyone familiar with the institutional organization of the Democratic Party and its relationship to major candidates and especially presidential candidates and, and presidents themselves once they occupy the White House, anyone familiar with that history would know that that the National Committee has operated as essentially an ATM for those candidates. That it really doesn't do much else. And interestingly, uh, as, as uh, careful political scientists like uh, Dan Galvin have shown, going back to the early post-war period, very much unlike their Republican counterparts, Democratic presidents have routinely exploited the DNC to the hilt. Uh, depriving it of all autonomy, whatever shred of autonomy it even nominally has, uh, basically subordinating it to the will of the Oval Office, uh, the use of it as a patronage machine for rewarding allies, and using it as a sort of junior partner to uh, run the president's uh, initial campaign and then the re-election campaign. That's very interesting. So it's, you, we're going to talk a lot about, you know, maybe debunking some of the mythology that, that, that uh, you know, that exists around, uh, you know, the, just the party structure in the, in the United States. The United States, as you write elsewhere, has a very unique party structure. So let's go back to the basics. Uh, the Democratic Party is at the center of a number of controversies, particularly on the left today, following Sanders, uh, you know, close but failed uh, attempt to win the nomination. So the main battle lines are drawn on the question of whether or not the Democratic Party should be or could be a site of struggle for leftward political advance. We have, you know, just really kind of making a straw man here for the sake of argumentation. I know there's a lot of differentiation and nuance here, but the argument seems to have, broadly speaking, two sides, particularly, say, like on the social uh, democratic left. One group is fighting to uh, go inside the Democratic Party and sort of wield it for left political purposes. And the other group is trying to uh, just rid itself of any kind of Democratic Party affiliation or influence. And you try to you, you your article really goes a long way in painting a far more complex picture. Uh, you write, unlike all other advanced capitalist democracies, The United States never produced a labor-based political party. As labor and social democratic parties emerged elsewhere during the late 19th century, American trade unionists debated whether or not to launch an independent party or to join an existing coalition, and they ultimately opted for a nonpartisan strategy of, quote, pure and simple unionism for fear of violent repression, partisan conflict in the union rank and file, and the oft-putting sectarianism of many American socialists. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Why is it that the American uh, uh, you know, labor movement did not opt for a traditional social democratic party formation? 
Yeah, well, it goes back to uh, the beginnings of the uh, AFL, the American Federation of Labor, uh, in the late 19th century. And uh, just as, as you mentioned, just to paint a bit of a comparative perspective here, as labor-based parties, social democratic parties, socialist parties, and formally speaking, labor parties were emerging and consolidating as organizational vehicles for the working class in many advanced capitalist countries on either side of the Atlantic. The uh, organized working class in the United States faced a situation where uh, two parties already existed uh, that had developed much earlier due to, in part, the fairly early democratization and, and, and spread of suffrage among uh, white male uh, property lists, working class people in the 1820s through the 1840s. And uh, to be frank, as, uh, just to spell out what I, what I say in that um, passage that you quoted, is they faced a fairly unique set of constraints. The organized labor movement, the Gompersonians, the Gompers leadership of the AFL, were very cautious of what would happen to them were they to try and sponsor a labor party that would compete with and, and probably, hopefully, displace one of the existing uh, major two parties. Uh, Republicans and Democrats at the time, or join in one of the existing ones. That is, tr- try and become a partisan member of a of an existing party coalition. And what they opted for instead was a was a seemingly uh, position of a pressure group, right? In the formal old sense of you remain independent and autonomous of two existing parties, so that you may meaningfully try and leverage one against the other in order to, to meet your demands. So this would give the Labor Federation flexibility to work with Republicans in states where states or cities where Republicans held power, work with Democrats in places where Democrats held power. But at the same time, there were other things they were very worried, worried about too. Uh, it wasn't just for an actual strategic flexibility, is they were genuinely concerned that were they to try and become overtly political organizations that the trade unions would face more violent repression than they had already faced in the late 19th century with the Pinkertons and uh, especially state militias basically destroying them every chance that they got through last third of the 19th century. So we might say that conservatism, or at least the hesitancy there, to be more accurately, perhaps. I mean, we might interpret that in hindsight with, with historical perspective as a conservative edge. But perhaps it was a more pragmatic hesitancy towards a, you know, a labor radicalism was brought about by a, a fairly, the fairly unique barbarism that, that the early labor movement faced during that time. Absolutely. I mean, I, you can go back and you, you can find, of course, as you can within the labor movement or any movement at any particular time, there were competing tendencies. Uh, and even those who were ideologically and principally committed to trying to launch an independent political voice for labor, either as a third party or linking strongly with an existing party, even those folks understood that pragmatically this could blow up in their face. Right. And set them back another generation. Right. It's very interesting that you point, because actually what I should have asked beforehand. So we'll go back to it now. What I should have asked beforehand, before I got into the, uh, you know, whether 
or not a social democratic party formation in the United States, like the the ones that were popping up, like say, um, you know, in the 1880s and 1890s in, in Europe, because we need to go about 50 years uh, backwards in time to really understand, to, to really set the stage for this, because you write about the world historic formation of a fairly egalitarian, at least in terms of, like you say, property less men, white men, in the 1830s and 40s, we had the first mass democratic parties uh, in the world, perhaps. So tell us a little bit about the formation of the Whigs and uh, in, in the, um, the, 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 uh, the, the, yes, Democrats at that time. Yeah, they, they, it's, it's, uh, uh, the Whigs sprout up as a competitor to the Jacksonian uh, Democratic Party, which really is uh, the first mass party. And what I mean by that, and it's we have to be pretty careful about what we mean by that. Right, right. Now it's a <laughs> there. Are, there are quite a few people left out of that mass, if you might, you know. If you, well, absolutely, yeah. and and even further, I want to emphasize that this is a mass party, meaning that it is oriented to mobilizing large blocks of uh, electoral uh, uh, of, of voters in order so that they might take office right, when prevail in elections and take office. But these were not, decidedly not, mass member organizations, right? And this is the critical departure between American party organizations and their European, Western European counterparts, is these were, they were, so they were mass organizations, they were, they were oriented towards mobilizing followings, but they did not integrate those followings into any kind of membership organization that had some ultimately centralized bureaucratic form of decision making. Membership implies that those members might have some amount of nominal or real control over the party. Where you have a mass, but that is not made up of members, their relationship to the leadership of the party is much more tenuous. So all this is to say that rather then the Western European situation, which was famously once described by one of the pioneers of political party scholarship as uh, Western European mass parties arising as a contagion from the left, right? The need to try and build robust membership-based, dues-based organizations around the enfranchisement of the working class. Instead, in the United States, you had political elites inside the state, needing to go outward into the country to mobilize larger and larger followings so that they might beat their elite counterparts in the contestation of office. Wow. So you might you might sort of make a modern day comparison here with that. That would be more of an astroturf movement as opposed to the European, uh, you know, outgrowth would be a more grassroots movement, uh, perhaps. To say, yeah, I, it's I don't think that would be uh, an incorrect analogy. American political parties in the United States were built from the top down. So there's a lot of parallels here, as you mentioned in your article. My first episode ever here on the Dead Pundit Society, I had on Seth Ackerman, who at that time had just written a blueprint for a new party. Mm-hmm. Uh, old school Dead Pundit Society uh, listeners will have heard that one for sure. If you haven't, folks, you go check it out. Um, that, that's still a relevant article. It's talking about 
you know, first and foremost, the nature of American political parties, the, the, the impasses of making them, like you say, uh, mass parties, uh, actually mass membership parties with direction from the members and inclusion and uh, mass participation. And then what it would mean to sort of develop a third a third way outside of mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, two-party duopoly, uh, you know, duopolistic systems that we have. Uh, what do you make of Seth's argument about, you know, his, his analysis of, of the, the party structure and what to do about it? I think, I mean, Seth has put out a very interesting uh, uh, set of ideas and, and I really need to credit him with, with very creative thinking about this. Uh, I think it's, it's a visionary statement and it does um, articulate what to my mind is a, is a plausible idea on how you could push forward a way of trying to construct a third party institutionally or, or organizationally. My reservations about it, which were similar to the ones that uh, I believe uh, Adolf Reed and it was probably Mark Dudzik, um, yep, yep. Their, their response to uh, Seth's uh, essay. Um, and this is, this is generally my, my criticism of what I see as being rather uncritical uh, endorsements for third parties, uh, actually existing third parties today, is that it has a little bit of a tendency to assume that, that the constituency for a third party already exists out there somewhere. That the two-party system is merely strangling the expression of this desire. And people are right to point to, there was actually just recently a new opinion survey that found about 61% of respondents, if I, if I recall, were generally supportive to the idea that there should be more electoral options uh, in the United States. And that's great. That, that suggests that there is some basis on which to build. But nevertheless, the, the actual structural imposition of trade-offs between those who would be inclined to support a third party but do not want to uh, suffer what we call the spoiler problem, where you split the left-leaning vote in two ways, neither hits a, a plurality or, or a majority threshold, and you end up facilitating the election of your least favorite party. The Ralph Nader effect if, for, for folks of this generation, if you will. At least that's the allegation. Yeah, that is the allegation. And you know, I mean, we can put to the side whether that is, is, is right. actually true or not. But it's true enough in the sense that this presents a, a real barrier that I think me- that, that many people feel they cannot take that risk. There's a specter that's haunting third party politics, you might say, that falls under the sign of of the Ralph Nader effect. Whether or not it's true is not is beside the point. That's that's, that's always the clear and present danger. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So let's let's go back. This was good. This was a good. Uh, we we spent a solid twenty minutes there, just kind of talking around the topic. We hit on a number of issues. Uh, we foregrounded the recent. Uh, you know, our, our contemporary moment in, in the, the tumult inside the Democratic Party with uh, Donna Brazil's recent allegations and revelations, if you will. So let's go all the way back. Socialists, all the way back to the time of Marx, have thrown around a concept uh, when it comes to political parties that socialists in the United States are using heavily today. And we want to kind of theorize this and think about the accuracy of it. You ask the question, is the Democratic Party a bourgeois party? Because that's the way it's oftentimes dismissed, right? So tell us, what is a bourgeois party? 
And and what's your assessment of, of whether or not the Democratic Party uh, qualifies as well? Yeah, well, I think it's a question worth asking. And, you know, when I once I began asking that question, uh, I actually basically searched around in vain to find, uh, despite the frequency of its use as a uh, term of opprobrium, it's very hard to find a coherent defense of it as a concept. What about a bourgeois party makes it so bourgeois? You know, is it is it its sources of funding? Is it its the who its social base who it rallies for elections? Is it simply its party platform, the its program? Is it, it the policies of its office holders? You know, it's it's unclear. It's ambiguous. So as as I've tried to think this through, basically came up with you could probably think of a bourgeois party in two different ways. Uh, you could contrast it on the one hand, sort of treat it as an analog of a working class party, right? A party that is dedicated to the uh, transformation of the proletariat into a class, as uh, Marx and Engels once put it, one that not only is trying to build the collective capacities of the working class to think and act like a class, but is also trying to win seats in office through democratic electoral processes to leverage the power of that class in order to winning simply uh, short-term modest reforms or even more ambitious non-reformist reforms. If that's what a working class party is, well then a bourgeois party it would seem to follow would be one that organizes the bourgeoisie to act as a class. Yet, that doesn't quite describe the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has historic roots going back to the New Deal and, and arguably even before, of having within it the organized presence of, of the working class, especially from 1936 uh, through the 1960s and 70s, was able to act as a kind of uh, surrogate campaign organization for the Democratic Party. So if the Democratic Party is a bourgeois party in that sense, it is also somewhat of a working class party. It's a strange hybrid of a certain kind. I think that maybe there's another way of thinking about bourgeois party that gets us a little closer to the truth, which is that you could construct an analogy with the bourgeois state, or what is at least these days more often called the capitalist state. Right. And now we're getting into uh, the labor and the capitalist state theme. Uh, your, your portion of the article that, dis- that discusses this is really interesting. So I want folks to listen closely to this. You know, we had uh, Raphael Kachaturian talk about state theory. We had Leo Panich uh, break down the importance of uh, state theory in assessing imperialism and then the way that parties and states function. We had Steve Marr on last week to talk about corporations in the state. So now here you are, Adam Hilton. Tell us about Democratic Party and uh, the capitalist state. Okay, well, if, if we were to build an analogy between a bourgeois party and the bourgeois state, we, it's obviously pointing to something structural. Um, the whole contribution of, of going back to uh, Miliband and Pulantzas back in the 1970s and moving on through um, Leo Panich and, and, and some of the other members uh, uh, that you've had on your show, the members of this debate have contributed uh, the claim that the personnel of the state, those who are actually elected to office, those who serve as bureaucrats, uh, whether they all are members of the capitalist class, uh, whether they have large portfolio investments, whether they all just went to the same elite schools, or whether they were all taught to think in terms of homo economicus, 
by their neoclassical economics teachers. Part of what the theory of the capital state is contributing is that even if none of those things are true, even if we could imagine a working class party elected to office that is committed to a socialist program or a program that is some ways going to challenge the power and authority of the business community, that the capitalist state, due to its own structural dependence on the performance of capitalism, on economic growth, for its own self-reproduction, both in terms of materially reproducing itself, but also remaining uh, uh, reproducible in the terms of legitimacy, that even then the state would be dependent on governing on behalf of capital, right? It would face that structural constraint. And I think this gets us a little closer to understanding maybe how the Democratic Party is a bourgeois party. I see. I see. So even though there are elements inside of the, of, of the various Democratic Party coalitions throughout history, and we're going to get we're going to get into those here shortly, uh, even though, say, working class and labor elements are inside of that coalition, the party nonetheless is oftentimes finds itself at the helm of a capitalist state, which ha- is, is sort of compelled by capitalist imperatives to do just that, to reproduce the relations of capitalism, which is the subordination of labor to the capitalists, in short, and then the competition of American capital with with foreign capital and and, and otherwise, perhaps just to, just to name a couple dynamics. Yeah, and I think we could go even further uh, beyond just what party scholars call the party in government, by which we mean all those members of the Democratic Party that are office holders. But if we also look at the party organization outside of the state, right? The, the apparatus that we know as the Democratic National Committee, uh, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, uh, all the state Democratic parties and uh, 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 local party committees. If we, if we take that whole organizational ensemble, even that is, is precisely because, because it is not a mass membership organization. It, it does not have members. It does not have dues that those members pay. Uh, it does not have policy committees that facilitate and develop their members in an ideological kind of way. That party is structurally dependent on finding finance wherever it can. And the easiest way it can do that is through linkages with the business community. So in the same way that the capitalist state is structurally dependent on the business community as a whole for the reproduction of itself, we could see in ways that the Democratic Party, and, and both, obviously, both American political parties, because they're structured in pretty similar ways, are structurally dependent on trying to organize financing by appealing to sectors of capital in, in ways where they do not have to appeal in the same way to mass memberships. So in, in as much as the parties tend to passively rely on voters Right. Every time an election season comes, then they start worrying about how to organize voters to get out the vote. Right. Between campaign seasons, the Democratic Party has no organizational presence in most people's lives. However, at the top of the income scale, the Democratic Party is almost a permanent presence of those people's lives through fundraising dinners, through all kinds of different mechanisms linking linking them to where their funding comes from. So the party is very passive and hollow when it comes to organizing its mass members, but is exceptionally active in trying to organize capital in order to get their funding. 
it strikes me that political parties in the United States, what you're explaining here, what you write about in your in your articles, uh, in various essays, is that I mean, it's it's an institution, but it's almost kind of like the Swiss cheese of institutions, right? Because on the one hand, it has a certain t- it has a certain kind of uh, shape and a certain kind of fo- institutional form to itself, but it really does have a lot of holes in it in terms of the way that typical institutions, uh, in the way that institutions typically uh, shape the collectivities that are bound or, or inside of it or, 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 or underneath of it or, or however you want to frame it, right? So, I mean, I promised I was going to go back into the history, but let's jump ahead uh, just, just to kind of flag an issue here. You just really explained the key fault lines between the Clinton and the Sanders campaign in, in, in the Donna Brazil revelations that just mm-hmm. came out because the accusation is that uh, the Clinton campaign subordinated the DNC – uh, to to itself, uh, because Clinton was out there getting these uh, you know high dollar donors to these to these mm-hmm. parties uh, to to fund the operations of the Democratic Party uh, going into the 2016 election. That was the promise, mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, whether or not you know she was successful is another question. Perhaps. No, if anything, if these if these revelations are true, which. I mean, at least to to some degree, I think they are. We can maybe talk more about how how I think we could misinterpret what Brazil is saying. But to the degree that it's true, in fact, this only lays more blame for the outcome of the election on Clinton's shoulders. Because if she was truly in in command of the DNC from that early a point, there is no way you can blame lackluster operatives of the DNC for her failure in in the election. Because now the entire campaign, not only her campaign, but the nominally independent campaign operations undertaken on her behalf by the DNC was actually just her own personal responsibility. She's not a passive victim. She was the orchestrator. Apparently. Along, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So we can flag that for the end. Cause I like you, I want to get back to that and get your take on some of these, some, some of these. Yeah. Let me, let me just uh, add just one thing to cap off the, the discussion sure, sure. of uh, party structure. Um, I, I mean, actually I like your analogy of, of Swiss cheese and that, that, that gets that metaphor or that simile gets us, um, I think, gets us uh, pretty far. But the other, the other sort of image that, that I've been toying with lately, uh, and this applies to both parties uh, through, through their long history, is American political parties are, are like amoebas or something like that. They, ha- they have a discernible formal structure, right? We can point to what is the formal party. Right there's the DNC, there's the RNC, uh, there are the state parties, there are the state party chairs and vice chairs and etc. But they are are rather hollow organizations, and what I mean by that is, American political parties for a very long time have never really had much of a way of developing the resources and skills they need to win elections in house. So what what they do is they have to find sort of campaign and financial organizational surrogates that they can glom onto and use to try and and win electoral majorities. And the parties first did this going way way back to what we were talking about before in the in the eighteen um, thirties uh, and throughout the most of the nineteenth uh, century. They did this by colonizing states. Right by colonizing government and basically selling off the resources of the government, right long before a civil service 
uh, bureaucracy developed in the United States, it was all staffed by party appointments. So parties through patronage networks built themselves up from the state and outward into the society. Now, service, uh, civil service reform eventually came, uh, closing off access of, uh, to that vital resource for parties. And then they had to start coming up with other ways of, of mobilizing mass members and, and uh, developing the resources needed to win majorities. And this is where the parties actually become much more movement-oriented is movements become something that, that not only try to influence parties, but that parties are very interested in integrating, but on their terms. And this becomes the long thread that goes through the ups and downs of American electoral politics, is both parties have been drawn inexorably towards different movements that have their own mobilizing infrastructures, right? The labor movement, obviously, through the trade unions and through dues financing, would become a powerful electoral vehicle. But so would uh, right-wing Christian churches for the Republican Party in the 1970s and 80s and so on. So those amoeba-like structures make them permeable, right, by outside forces. But they also, they give parties the need to try and reach out and find existing resources out there in society through which they can mobilize to try and win elections. That, that is an incredibly fascinating observation, a structural historical kind of foundation, because, I mean, I think it's, it's you know, I don't think we even need to say that the history of social movements in North America and particularly the United States is kind of unique. I mean, I think, you know, of all of the countries, perhaps, whether it's deserved or not, I don't know, of all of the countries in the world, I would say. I mean, um, the United States is known for having, I think, the most like iconic social movements. And, and perhaps you've really pointed to the the reason for that. And, and so far as these movements are there to make themselves available in a variety of ways to one or another party. And so there's, there's always this kind of push or pull into how the party will incorporate or not incorporate or be able to mobilize or not be able to mobilize this or that movement or collectivity of people in a way that these movements operate outside of the party necessarily because the party is really kind of a, a hollow vessel that sort of requires the lifeblood and the energy of these movements to, 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 to mm-hmm. operate and, 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 and run by operate. And we, you mean very explicitly to win elections and finance right. elections. Right. And I mean, and, and part of the explanation of, of just what you're saying is, is in, for one, the rather unique structure of the American state provides so many openings to, to social movements, to interest groups, to organized actors in American society, that it's no wonder that social movements proliferate. And, and, and we talk now, in, at least in the social movement literature, of the social movement society, when everyone, right, right and left and center, uh, mobilize along uh, familiar social movement kind of tactics. But because the political parties, as, as we discussed uh, a little earlier, because the political parties developed inside the state and then went outward into society, it's no wonder that the parties have a similar structure to the American state in that they are federated, decentralized institutions, right? There isn't, there isn't really a national democratic party. There are 50 state parties. Actually, there are more because they have state parties and territories uh, and uh, protectorates. Uh, 
but let's just say for now that there are 50 state democratic parties, right? And they confederate together once every four years to try and nominate uh, a candidate for, for national office. Uh, that's a highly permeable structure, you know, where, where you don't actually have to capture the castle, the national committee, in order to have power in the party. As I think I mentioned in the, uh, the essay in the Register, uh, Eric Schickler's new book on the rise of the civil rights movement within the Democratic Party, going all the way back to the 30s and the 40s, is that racial liberals, along with their labor allies in, in the newly formed uh, CIO at the time, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, uh, they could penetrate state parties, right, and change state party platforms and put pressure on state party actors who did not have the same kind of pressures on them that, say, Truman or Kennedy or Johnson before 1964 had on them to try and hold together a New Deal coalition that, that straddled labor liberals in the North and very racially conservative anti-union Democrats in the South. Interesting. So I, I'm tempted to get into the, the, some of the more the, some of the things about arguments as to why perhaps this permeability uh, lends itself to maybe taking over the Democratic Party as a vessel of progressive and leftward advance. But I'm going to flag that. I'm going to bookmark that, and we're going to put that towards the end of the episode. But because before we do that, we're really talking around the various coalitions that have existed inside and outside the Democratic Party since the beginning. So we're going to go at least back to the New Deal, I would say. So to tell me a little bit about the coalition of broad social, political, economic forces uh, that were really behind the Democratic Party's success in the New Deal. Yeah, well, the New Deal, uh, it stood on three legs organizationally. You had, of course, northern big city, what they were called machine Democrats, right? This is the mayoral offices that become associated with the Democratic Party or, or even uh, governorships that become these uh, party machines. Tammany Hall in New York being one of the most famous but far from uh, the only one. Then, of course, you had the long-established stronghold of the Democratic Party, or since the real end of Reconstruction and the consolidation of Jim Crow, which was the uh, one-party Democratic South. A place uh, where, as uh, Rob Mickey has uh, argued very convincingly in a fairly uh, new book called Paths Out of Dixie, these were not just places where the Democratic Party was dominant, these were places that, by the same standards that we would apply to, say, the Soviet Union, were one-party authoritarian states, where there was no institutional difference between the Democratic Party in, say, the state of Mississippi and the state of Mississippi. The state and the party had fused. And then, uh, third of all, the, uh, the New Deal coalition, the new uh, relatively new member of the New Deal coalition uh, after uh, the 1932 and especially by the 1936 election uh, was, of course, labor. That through the actions of the CIO, which in 1935 had broken away from the AFL, became uh, one of the main organizational vehicles and funders of democratic elections in uh, the late 1930s, early 40s. 
So you can see there those that three-legged stool that you sort of just uh, constructed for us there that comprised the New Deal Democratic Party coalition. There are some inherent contradictions in, in, among those three, not only among the three themselves, but also within the three, mm-hmm. right? I mean, labor itself is not a monolith. Uh, the the urban machine political apparatuses they are not monolithic and the, the Dixiecrats you know at that time uh, were all themselves not monolithic and the various there was some differentiation between from state to state from the old border states to the deep south and so on um, so so the, we're, we're we're really building up an a tenuous uh, conflictual contradictory uh, unity of forces inside the Democratic Party uh, leading up to the New Deal and beyond. So you can see that ruptures and fractures are going to begin to open as time goes on within those coalitions. So take us past uh, World War II then into the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens uh, in in the South uh, with, with that coalition? Yeah, well, it is uh, the ruptures begin almost instantly. Uh, you're right to point to the contradictions uh, within each leg of the stool, but also especially between the legs of the, stu- of the stool. And the overall dynamic of the New Deal, the success of the coalition, is what is undermining the conditions for its reproduction uh, over time. Uh, it's also worth noting that it is only because you have a federated, decentralized party structure that this coalition could exist at all. Uh, it's impossible to imagine uh, the anti-union, uh, racially conservative South in the same party coalition, uh, under the same party label, with its avowed enemies in the North, uh, labor liberals in the North. So, that being said, the party structure not only allowed this uh, coalition to, to exist, but also became one of the major re- mechanisms for its reproduction. Um, and so the, the big first uh, internal party flare-up uh, occurs at the uh, 1948 uh, Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. This is a time uh, where President Truman uh, is looking for a re-election. Truman's advisors are telling him at first, uh, you know, you can probably ignore the South. The South can be taken for granted. The South doesn't have any room for maneuver. Right? It's a one-party South. Where are they going to go? They can't possibly deflect, uh, defect to uh, the Republicans. And um, so eventually, um, although this, it gets pretty dicey in terms of uh, Truman begins to get very nervous about this uh, in terms of the South threatening to create a lot of problems for him, at his nominating convention, the CIO and uh, the major group of Cold War liberals known as uh, the Americans for Democratic Action or the ADA, they insert a very strongly worded civil rights plank into the um, Democratic platform uh, at the convention. Hubert Humphrey gives a barn burner of a resolution nominating speech. The floor of the convention overwhelmingly votes the platform in, and the Southern delegations go walking out. Uh, Mississippi uh, and South Carolina in particular, and they end up sponsoring their own third party bid called the States Rights Party, uh, led by then Governor Strom Thurmond. Yeah, so they go walking out and launch the States' Rights Party, also uh, known as the Dixiecrat Party. Right. Now, the effort there, that's the birth of the of the Dixiecrats. The effort there was to undermine the Democratic Party's electoral success by, by you know, by uh, which would potentially 
not win the Democratic Party, the Electoral College uh, during that presidential election year. And so they really were threatening to to blow up the whole the whole party if, if they couldn't get their way, um, you know, in, in that in that coalition, they felt very marginalized and they were very sensitive to attacks on their on their power or on their their, their own, on their grip within the party. Yeah, and uh, and you know the 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 bid to um, deny uh, then President Truman a majority of the Electoral College did not succeed. Um, although they did manage to win um, some Electoral College votes uh, in the uh, 1948 contest, it was especially uh, the threat was especially effective. Also, because you have to remember it was a four party contest that election year because Henry Wallace was running as the progressive candidate to the left of the Democrats. Um, so with the Republicans and the Democrats, then you also had the Dixiecrats and the progressives uh, running national campaigns. Uh, Wallace did not pick up any uh, electoral votes as it happened. Um, but still, nonetheless, the message was sent and the message was, it was received. If the National Democratic Party uh, was going to continue to push strongly worded uh, civil rights as a policy platform, then the South would bolt. And unsurprisingly, there were very few reprisals uh, in terms of the elimination of patronage for Southern members of Congress who had supported the Dixiecrats uh, in the 1948 election. And then the subsequent conventions, uh, 1952 and 1956, uh, under... Uh, uh, Illinois Governor Adlai Stevenson, who wins the nomination uh, for the Democratic Party in both instances, uh, is he strongly moves to placate the South and to cool tempers, to dilute the uh, civil rights plank uh, in the platform and basically reassure them that you have really nothing to fear from me. And this is, this is a, an excellent instance of showing that the way in which party federalism, that decentralized party organization, where each state party was its own autonomous actor that did not have to toe the line for whatever the national party decided to put in its platform, could exert discipline on the entire national party by threatening to leave. So I just I want to reiterate, this is somewhat tangential, but I, I think it's really important to setting the stage. And I'm going to talk about this with my guest next week. I'm going to have Michael McCarthy on the show. He's a sociologist out of a University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we're going to talk more explicitly about this. But just the year before, in 1947, the infamous Taft-Hartley Act comes down. In large part pushed on, I'm sure you, I'm sure you can elaborate far better than I, pushed on by the, the, the would-be Dixiecrats or soon-to-be Dixiecrats who saw the labor militancy, particularly of the CIO, the interracial labor militancy in the South, as a threat to their white supremacist, uh, you know, uh, autarky, really, in, in those uh, southern states. So, so, I mean, even it's, I think it's important to note, really, that even prior to their, uh, their hissy fit, to put it uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an appropriately southern uh, form, formulation there, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the South Carolinian and Mississippi hissy fit that they had, uh, you know, I'm a good southerner, I can say things like that. So, uh, even prior to that, they had won a, a serious victory, which would, which would just cripple uh, the, late, the interracial labor movement uh, the year before in Taft-Hartley. Mm -hmm. uh, so really, the Dixiecrats had... A, a, a very solid grip on the party, and they were very unwilling to compromise 
on their, uh, you know, autocratic white supremacist rule at that time. Yes. And well, but there were, there were still, there was still writing on the wall that was making the South incredibly nervous. Um, first of all, uh, uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think while those who would participate in the Dixiecrat bolt, as it came to be known, um, the passage of Taft-Hartley, which of course was passed over Truman's veto, which suggests that they had very, very high numbers, uh, a two-thirds threshold in both congressional chambers, that was a product not not just of the Southern Democrats, but crucially of of the anti-New Deal conservative coalition that had come together right. by 1937-38, right? That's with right. Southern yeah. Democrats yeah, yeah. joining with um, Northern Republicans, Northern and Western Republicans. Now, what the, while, the, um, while Taft-Hartley uh, clearly signaled a victory for the South, it was also a victory for the, for the pro-business, anti-labor wing of the Republican Party. Now, as, as the Dixiecrats would come to truly find out less than 20 years later, is but by the 40s they could already see this they could not necessarily trust the republicans right their conservative coalition counterparts they could not necessarily trust them to vote with the south on issues of civil rights right because that's the way that lyndon johnson is eventually going to defeat the southern filibuster of the 1964 civil rights act is is Johnson is going to be able to pull Republicans over to vote with Northern Democrats to break the filibuster. And, and so as much as, uh, as Taft-Hartley shows that there's a basis on which the South and the Republicans can work together, right, so long as it's anti-labor, uh, they looked at the Republicans and with suspicion that they would not be able to always count on them in terms of voting against uh, uh, issues that were not directly re- labor-related, but would affect issues of Southern so-called race relations. Right. I mean, and this is this is really getting into the weeds of things. We're, we're going to reel it back in right after this comment, I promise, uh, folks. I mean, there are a lot of people in the show who are following every word of this. I have a very smart audience. I, sound like, I always sound like Trump when I, uh, when I compliment. Smartest them. audience in very the world. Very smart people. <laughs> Smartest audience in the world, very smart people, my audience out there. But I mean it, I mean it really. But I also recognize there's some folks who are sort of newer to politics and whatnot. So we're going to reel it back in in just a moment. But it's my understanding that actually that Republican Party coalition that went along with Truman had a lot of interests in fighting uh, discrimination because they they were in, um, they sort of controlled certain sectors of capital that uh, you know uh, we're we're using and profiting immensely from from black labor, and so there was yeah you're you're right to point to the rifts there. There wasn't the, the Dixiecrats couldn't all they could always get the the Northern Republicans on side when it came to anti labor issues, but sometimes the race issue uh, contradicted the labor issue, which which pushed the Republicans in, in a more. Pfft, progressive direction, at least when it came to, uh, you know, anti-discriminatory policies such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So all this stuff, I mean, this is, if this sounds complex and confusing, good, because what what I'm trying, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to show that history is incredibly complex and contradictory. And these really neat and tidy narratives that we often paint just don't do any of that any justice. 
And so I think, you know, pointing towards uh, confusion and chaos sometimes, even if you don't quite understand what's going on, is 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 a is a more uh, uh, you know true to true to true to life uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> picture uh, to to try to, to to paint and develop. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about. Uh, we've talked about how the New Deal coalition began to unravel, and those contradictions and rifts began to widen throughout the 1948 debacle. And uh, they would widen much further still, as as we sort of pointed to in the civil rights movement and beyond. So let's start working towards the the new politics movement of uh, the 1968 and 1972. How, how do we get there? Sure. Well, in as much as uh, as the uh, internal rift within the New Deal coalition is growing between Southern Democrats and Northern racial liberals and, and, and labor liberals uh, and, and the rise of the civil rights movement in the form that we know it uh, or that we are, are most familiar with of the, uh, uh, the sit-down, or I should say the sit-ins and uh, the March on Washington and, and, and so on. By 1966-67, an additional rift begins forming uh, within the labor liberal community, if you want, itself going back to the contradictions, not just between the legs of the stools, but within the legs of the stools. Um, and that fundamentally, that access develops fundamentally over the issue of uh, Cold War fo- foreign policy, um, especially in Vietnam. And the Johnson's escalation of the Vietnam War after 1965, which eventually puts somewhere in the range of a half million uh, troops on the ground in, um, in Vietnam, uh, not to mention uh, uh, all the bombings, um, is becoming uh, increasingly difficult for fairly centrist, traditionally anti-communist uh, liberals to continue to reconcile themselves with. In as much as that project, going back to the early post-war period, had had some basis in asserting uh, universal human rights uh, and uh, respect for human life and dignity, et cetera, et cetera, and fighting totalitarianism. The images coming through uh, media and the reports, not to mention the political critiques that are being voiced by the growing campus anti-war movement, has people like Arthur Schlesinger, uh, James Galbraith, or I should say John, excuse me, John Galbraith, and other very prominent members of the democratic liberal community um, coming to be at war with themselves and with one another how to reconcile their commitment to liberalism, and especially, especially their commitment to Lyndon Johnson, who, who, while escalating this war, is also advancing the most progressive domestic legislative program that anyone has seen since the early New Deal. All right. This was the great society programs that ended uh, discrimination, all, all types of uh, fairly progressive, uh, you know, racial and uh, gender and other sort of uh, programs yeah. as well. So how they can continue to be good liberal Democrats while also a, grow, having growing doubts, not just about the ability to succeed uh, in the military venture in uh, Vietnam, but also the fundamental premises of the war uh, and, and its growing humanitarian cost. These things by uh, 1967 have uh, many concerned Democrats beginning to think that what they need to do is to try and put pressure on Johnson to make a major policy change. And the vehicle that they choose to do this 
is by running someone against a sitting Democratic president for the nomination of the Democratic Party. And so this, this begins uh, mostly through the uh, agency of, of one particular rather well-known uh, liberal uh, actor, uh, which is uh, Allard Lowenstein, who launches a Dump Johnson campaign. And what initially probably was only meant to put pressure on Johnson, surprise, surprise for everyone involved, ultimately ends up succeeding. It got legs, sort of like the Bernie Sanders it campaign. It got legs. Right? It got legs rather quickly. Yeah. It especially, it was very successful through uh, college campuses. Most labor leaders were very hesitant to challenge Johnson. Uh, so, for instance, the, U, the United Auto Workers, which arguably had one of the most left-leaning leaderships, simply could, could only engineer as much as a neutrality position, but couldn't, uh, couldn't openly side against Johnson. But uh, labor leaders' hesitancy notwithstanding, um, the dumb Johnson movement ends up succeeding and through the uh, challenges from first Senator Eugene McCarthy and then subsequently Senator uh, Robert Kennedy, Johnson ends up withdrawing from the race uh, altogether. This opens up a vacuum at the top of the party. It is now quite unclear where things are going to go. Only 17 states held primaries in uh, 1968. Robert Kennedy and uh, and. Uh, Eugene McCarthy collectively won probably two-thirds of all the delegates in that. Hubert Humphrey, vice president uh, at the time, didn't enter a single primary, but labor in particular, uh, labor leaders were busy rounding up delegates through um, states that rather than holding primaries, held conventions or caucuses, which were usually quite literally closed um, to the public. And so anti-war activists weren't able to participate in those. In some cases, you write they all these anti-war activists, uh, you know, supporters of uh, Robert Kennedy or Eugene McCarthy, often found locked and chained doors uh, to prevent their participation in, in, in this process. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, what they often found is when they demanded, um, you know, a state committee's bylaws, uh, so that they could try and understand how they might introduce resolutions or might gain a chance to speak from the convention floor, they often found that those state parties actually didn't have written rules. And the, uh, that they operated uh, through custom and tradition. Good old boy networks. And, Good old boy uh, networks. Wink, wink, nudge uh, network and that sort of thing, right? In fact, uh, yeah, in, in Connecticut, the DNC chair uh, was, was informally and kind of colloquially referred to as the king of the Democratic Party. Uh, and what that actually captures is how much this the power of the party was in a kind of personalismo kind of politics. Uh, that there really, if you removed the actors from the state party committees, there wasn't an organization left. There just it, it was only in the people uh, who existed in these networks. Um, so all this is to say that uh, anti-war activists faced insurmountable barriers in, in, in getting to participate with these things, found uh, that the uh, proceedings of, of caucus and convention states could be, uh, could be manipulated arbitrarily by the uh, party chairman uh, that they encountered. And even in the primary states, for instance, Eugene McCarthy won a commanding victory in the New York primary, uh, and then the state committee simply added an additional 50 delegates 
of which they got to handpick who they were. So, so, so. <laughs> because why not? There are no bylaws. They can do whatever exactly. they want. Right? And, and so they would massively dilute the McCarthy forces in the New York delegation. So fast forward a little bit. Of course, uh, Robert Kennedy is, uh, is assassinated the evening of, of winning the California primary um, in June, I believe. And then it's only about maybe six weeks after that the Democratic uh, National Convention in Chicago assembles and nominates Vice President Hubert Humphrey on the first ballot. So there's a real theme here that you're that you're drawing out here in more intense historical detail that you point to, I believe, in your Jacobin essay. You you had an essay in the issue of Jacobin last year, or maybe it was a little over. I think it was June. It might now. have been June, or maybe it was April 2016. Yeah, it's been been a little while now, uh, but fantastic essay that's in print and now online for free. Folks should should check that out. I'll link to it in the show notes. But but really, what you're talking about here is that. <laughs> Oddly enough, you're, you're painting a real picture of decentralization, of party structure, and it's really kind of the personalization of the institution. The institution really is the person. Like, l'état c'est moi, you might say like, le Democratic Party uh, c'est moi, <laughs> yeah, right. right? Right, like, I mean, it, really and truly. And so what, what you sort of s- summarize, I believe in that essay in Jacobin, is you sort of say, well, what the, what the new politics movement discovered, what these young militants discovered who who went into the Democratic Party in the late 60s and early 70s, try to take it over and steer it in a more principled direction. What they discovered was that there was no institution to take over. Mm-hmm. And so that movement, in, in, in large part, was one of, of actually creating an institution, mm-hmm. of mandating, uh, uh, you know, uh, st- uh, stable structures, bylaws, centralizing these very decentralized and personalized forces and trying to create an actual vessel that could be commandeered uh, ideally by them. Right. Exactly. And so, so it's, it's kind of really, you, you, you pay, point to something that's really kind of counterintuitive and that like, this is not simply a story as we often tell it, I think on the left of all oh, these people went into the democratic party and they tried to take it over. No, no, no. It's, it's more than that. They went into the democratic party and discovered that there was nothing behind the curtain except like the wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. right. Talking into a microphone. Right. Uh, and so they had to sort of work to build these structures mm-hmm. um, from the bottom up. So maybe just say a little bit about what that looks like, and then we'll go ahead and break uh, because we're going on for about an hour now, and we'll talk about the, the contemporary implications uh, over on the beach. Sure, sure. So in the course of the 1968 insurgent campaigns, many activists come to find that when they meet each other and when they talk to each other, that that McCarthy activists in Connecticut and uh, Kennedy activists in Massachusetts and in California and so on, they're finding they are having the same experience, right? And so they begin to form uh, what ends up being called the new politics, which is, you know, people dispute whether it was this a movement or just a mood or a zeitgeist or something like that. Um, And we don't have to go into that. But they prepared themselves between the time of Kennedy's assassination, uh, when it was clear that their best hope for actually capturing the nomination of the party was gone. Uh, They prepared themselves for the Chicago Convention by coming up with a list of demands that also essentially cataloged all the procedural irregularities and problems with the 
actual nomination process. And this is, I mean, what's unbelievable is that no such document existed anywhere in the party. There was no systematic understanding of how the party worked. Wow. It's just incredible. Um, so once this is presented at the convention, amidst what we know about this convention, being plunged into police violence and riots, uh, being broadcast on all three national networks through primetime, millions of people are watching this. The chaos on the convention floor is almost as violent. And amidst all that, uh, the nomination of Humphrey, the denial of a anti-war plank in the uh, party platform of that year, a resolution is passed that says, okay, we will form a reform commission, an official party reform commission to look into this, right? And that narrowly passes. And what that, what that does is that becomes a vehicle, an institutional foothold for the new politics movement, the people who had been active in the McCarthy and, and uh, Kennedy anti-war insurgencies, plus new groups that are coming on board with this when they see what a clusterfuck the 1968 Democratic Convention became. Right, right. It, it was it was a madhouse. I'll, I'll try to link to some uh, some audio. CBS presents this program in color. Even inside the convention hall, the virus of violence was pervasive. Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite of CBS News. Take your hands off of me. Dan Rather. Unless you intend to arrest me, don't, don't push me, please. Sir, I know you won't, but don't push me. Take your hands off of me unless you intend to arrest me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Walter, you can see. I don't know what's going on, but this, these are security people apparently around Dan. Walter, obviously getting roughed up. We tried to talk to the man, and we got uh, bodily pushed out of the way. This is the kind of thing that's been going on outside the hall. This is the first time we've had it happen inside the hall. We, uh, I'm sorry to be out of breath, but somebody felt him in his stomach doing that. What happened is a Georgia delegate, at least he had a Georgia delegate sign on, was uh, being hauled out of the hall. We tried to... Uh, talked to him to see why, who he was, and what the situation was, and at that instance, the security people, uh, well, as you can see, put me on the deck. <laughs> I didn't do very well. I think we've got a bunch of thugs here, Dan, if I may be permitted to say so. Well, mind you, Walter, I'm all right. I, it's, uh, it's all in day's work. Uh, there were some uh, Democratic Party heads who were sort of caught on the microphone saying some really wild stuff, you know, on the stage or off off to the side of the stage. I mean, it was just it was it was chaotic. It really was uh, like a viscerally. I'm almost, I mean, there, there were some moments that, that this, this past year's DNC that were there were somewhat similar to that. I think you know with the Bernie Kratz sort of like uh, causing a ruckus at, at certain points, but it didn't. It, it really pales by comparison to what yeah. we saw. There. And and what the especially I mean what's so important important to capture here is that it was these activists plus new groups that were just kind of coming on the scene at the time, the National Women's Political Caucus, uh, the Gay Alliance, uh, 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 many, many new groups of what at the time were called the new social movements, all finding that they have a they common interest in that a democratized democratic party will empower them to advance their political and policy goals in national politics. So they're all coming together in the Reform Commission, right? Staffing it, lobbying it, helping implement the uh, guidelines that it ends up producing. But what's so critical about that moment 
is that the, the Democratic Party's legitimacy had been thrown into doubt. Right? This goes well beyond any kind of issue about whether superdelegates helped Clinton or hindered Sanders or anything. This was undeniable to everybody that the party was, was a total mess. Right? And what, what really hammered that conclusion home was that they lost in November. Right? Hubert Humphrey loses by a fraction of a percentage of the popular vote, quite literally one-tenth of one percent or something like that, uh, to Richard Nixon. So in that power vacuum, in that moment of, of, of uh, delegitimation, the new politics activists could persuasively argue that the reason that the Democrats lost is because the party is undemocratic. And that gained traction because no one could honestly look at their catalog of procedural irregularities and the absence of bylaws and rules. No one could plausibly defend that as being, well, there's no problem with this process because, hey, we produce winners. Right. No, you didn't produce a winner. You just lost the election. So it was in that moment between 1968 and 1972 that these activists have a window of opportunity in which they try and build that mass member party that the United States has never known. Very interesting. A lot of parallels there. I mean, they're just screaming at you, right? I mean, of course, uh, I wouldn't say that Richard Nixon was a Trump per se, but but boy, was Dick Nixon hated uh, by the long hairs and and, and, the, and the counterculture and the the folks who comprise what you're calling the new social movements and uh, parts of labor and, and, and the anti-war movement and stuff like that and and so for him to 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 defeat the the Democratic Party bosses, candidates, and strategies, you know, it's it's it's, it's somewhat it, there are there, the parallels between uh, Clinton's failure and the Sanders. A phenomenon are just way too stark to ignore. So I want to I want to really investigate those in, in in some detail. We're going to talk about some of the structural contradictions that are contained within the modern democratic, the contemporary democratic party. How they are similar to what you just laid out in the new politics movement. How they uh, uh, and how they differ. Because I, I mean, every essay that you see. Yours uh, excluded, present company excluded, <laughs> but every other essay that you see written by very smart people, people who, who have a lot of interesting and important things to say. Uh, Lance Selfa had a piece that you cited. I think believe that was actually in New Politics Journal, New Politics Magazine. Paul Heidemann had, a, had an otherwise pretty good essay, I think, in Jacobin and this, the same uh, print version that you put out. And, and many others have written uh, versions of this. Uh, Kim Moody. Uh, you know, renowned labor activist and author has a piece out. But all of these pieces rely on this direct historical comparison uh, between 1968-1972 Democratic Party, you know, um, struggles and today. Really what I want to get into with you in the next segment is to talk about what those similarities are, if the picture that they paint is accurate, and what does that really say about our uh, you know, contemporary moment. So let's go over on the B side. We're going to talk about that. Folks uh, who are patrons, head on over to the app and check that out. I'm going to have that out uh, in a few days. So folks should be looking out for that uh, by the end of the weekend. Uh, that'll be out. And um, if you're not a patron, you're missing out because this is the real, this is the real takeaway here. I'm sorry that I couldn't bring it to you here 
on, on the free show, but we're just getting a little bit too long. We're, we're, we're creeping up on an hour and 20 minutes. So Adam, thanks for joining us so much. You can sign off here and we'll see you over on the BC. All right. It was my pleasure. Thank you. And that was our show. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks again to Adam Hilton for dropping all that knowledge about the Democratic Party. So that free side uh, brought us up to 1972. If you want to go from 1972 to present, you're going to have to go over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and throw down five bucks a month to become a member of the Dead Pundit Society. You'll then get access to this B-side, which is going to be dropping in a couple of days. And you'll get access to the full back catalog of B-sides and other bonus content items. So support the New Left Agenda. I'd really appreciate it. Patrons, check that out in a couple of days' time. You all know what to do. You're the OGs and the veterans in the house. A lot of good stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks, folks. We're going to be continuing the Labor and the Capitalist State series, fall 2017. I've got Michael McCarthy coming up on the show very soon. He wrote a great book. It's called Dismantling Solidarity. We're going to be talking about the themes in that book. It's essentially, well, labor in the capitalist state. Uh, He's talking about some of the transformations in the labor movement that sort of led to the uh, devolution of labor in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. We're going to talk about that fall and maybe what we might do to work towards reversing it. I've got uh, Lee Phillips is going to be coming on the show very soon. He's got a really interesting book out uh, from Zero Books where he talks about the ecological crisis and the way in which um, we cannot go backwards, folks. We need the state and we need robust national intervention to reverse the ecological crisis. We cannot uh, go back to living in caves and, you know, subsisting off of nuts and berries or whatever sort of like uh, <laughs> primitivist fantasies that sort of uh, go on in certain left spheres. Not this left sphere, of course, because you guys are all super fucking sophisticated and you renounce primitivism, right? Well, if you don't, after you hear my discussion with Lee Phillips, you certainly will. A lot of other great guests that I'm not quite ready to announce, but they are coming up very shortly. So stay tuned in the coming weeks. A lot of good stuff coming on the Dead Pundit Society. Until then, Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother... <laughs>